Noon, welcome back. Thank you so much for sticking around. We have the unenviable position of being the panel right after lunch. So we're going to have great jokes. This is going to be a fantastic panel with four top leading economists and a former uh, government minister. So it's my pleasure uh, to welcome you back. My name is Melinda Herring. I'm the editor of Ukraine Alert blog here at the Atlantic Council. I hope you all read our blog. It comes out on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And now it's my pleasure to introduce the panel. To my left is Dr. Andres Oslin, who is a senior fellow here at the Atlantic Council. To his left is Minister Nat uh, Natalie Yuresko, the former finance minister of Ukraine. She is a distinguished fellow here at the Atlantic Council, and she is now the head of the Puerto Rican Fiscal Council. So welcome and congratulations on your new Thank job. You. Thank you. And uh, to her left is Ambassador Cliff Bond, who is the former acting coordinator of U.S. assistance to Eastern Europe, Eurasia, Central Asia at the State Department. Welcome, Cliff. Thank you. And uh, to his left, we have uh, Professor Vasil uh, Yurshin, who is the director of economic programs at the Rosmakov Center in Kiev. Welcome, Professor. So Ukraine is back in the news again in terms of its economy. Yesterday, the IMF gave uh, Ukraine $1 billion. And we want to just jump into that news because it is really big news. Anders, I'd like to turn to you. Um, the message that the IMF uh, said was, Ukraine, it's time to kick reforms into high gear. What else did they say in, in, in their message? Well, of course, uh, it's quite um, noteworthy that Ukraine now gets a fourth tranche of uh, this um, loan. And Ukraine has not performed uh, that well with any previous uh, uh, IMF uh, program. This is uh, Ukraine's 10th uh, IMF uh, program. Uh, in this uh, <clears throat> latest uh, agreement, Ukraine fulfilled admittedly only five out of 14 structural uh, conditions. So you wonder why did Ukraine then get the money? And the answer is twofold. One part of it was Ukraine has overfulfilled on the macroeconomic, uh, uh, and it has done so all along, and particularly when Natalia Yaresko was uh, <clears throat> Minister of Finance in 2015, Ukraine cut a budget deficit from 10% to 2% of GDP. And uh, the current government has basically hung in there. So public expenditure fallen from 53% of GDP in 2014 to now 40% of GDP. These are extremely good numbers. And Natalie discussed uh, other numbers uh, before, so I won't uh, uh, repeat them. And the other part is that Ukraine fulfilled the two most important structural reform um, the first was closing dubious banks, which means uh, private bank, which was taken over by the government uh, in December. And the other is the e-declaration, where Ukraine has greatly overperformed. Ukraine today, let this sink in, has a far greater transparency for senior officials than the United States has. And this uh, is the perspective we should use when we discuss um, uh, transparency. So what the IMF wants now is continue to do the good <coughs> macroeconomic job, but nothing new is really needed there. And then there are, this time, 16 structural conditions. Wow. What, what's important here is two conditions. One is uh, uh, pension reform legislation by the end of this month. 
And the second is a law on uh, agricultural land circulation, as it uh, <coughs> says, that is the legalization of uh, <coughs> sales of agricultural land, which should be uh, uh, adopted by the end of May. These are politically very sensitive issues and they're high up. Then the IMF insists on anti-corruption and e-declaration. So the new element here is uh, an anti-corruption uh, court. Personally referring to the uh, second panel today, I think that this is the wrong approach. What should be done is sack all the prosecutors. If you are serious about judicial reform, you sack all the judges and all the prosecutors. 8,000 judges, 18,000 prosecutors. That's what East Germany, Estonia, and Georgia did. And the problem here is, to a considerable extent, that the West that does not push that. Instead, they push the system of anti-corruption institutions, which are small and work beside the rest of the system. I don't believe in it. The model right now is Romania. And even if they made some headway, why start with the second best when you can go for the best, as we have seen in East Germany, Estonia, and uh, uh, Georgia. By the way, I have this in my book, uh, Ukraine, What Went Wrong and How to Fix It, that was published two years ago, discussing how that was done and how it should be done on the economic side. I totally agree with Natalie that Ukraine has overperformed in terms of economic reforms. It's the judicial reforms that are uh, missing now. So my view of the IMF is that they like Ukraine a lot. They are very impressed and they are trying to push Ukraine to become even better and they do it in a highly skillful way. Very good. Thank you, Anders. I'd like to turn uh, to, to Vasile now. And uh, you mentioned land reform, and this is a big, uh, uh, one of the big keys that the IMF has highlighted, many economists have highlighted. I've read that uh, if done correctly, allowing the sale of private farmland could really turbocharge the Ukrainian economy. It could potentially bring in $8 billion in the first stage of reform. Uh, Professor, I'd like to know, is $8 billion an accurate figure, and why can't Parliament pass the necessarily, necessary legislation? As I understand it, it was attempted last October uh, for the eighth time, and it failed again. Can you tell us uh, a little bit more about that, and, and why these attempts keep failing? Thank you. Звичайно, це одна з ключових реформ, яку виставляє Міжнародний валютний фонд. Проте, наразі, мені здається, ситуація не настільки проста. Тобто, мова не може йти лише про окремі кошти. Я нагадаю, що мова йде не про приватну власність, а про... Зараз в Україні існує приватна власність на землю, але існує мораторій на вільний продаж землі. І якраз вперше цей мораторій був запроваджений у 2001 році. Він з року в рік продовжується. Останній термін продовження мораторію на продаж землі – це початок 2018 року. Далі, звичайно, ситуація може розвиватися різними сценаріями. І тут два напрями. Перший – це відкритий ринок для українців, щоб українці могли вільно купувати, продавати землю. Але тут є величезне питання, 
land, uh, land lordization, щоб не було величезних угідь. В такому випадку, якщо залишатиметься мораторієм для входження іноземців, то очікується, що економічний ефект приблизно складе 40-45 мільярдів доларів, але за 10 років. Тобто не 8, а приблизно 4-5. Якщо ж відкрити ринок землі і для іноземців, то капітальні та грошові потоки зростуть десь приблизно до 55-60 мільярдів доларів. Теж за 10 років. Чому влада не може піти на такий крок або йде дуже помало? Справа в тому, що в суспільстві існує величезний опір вільному продажу землі. Я хочу нагадати, що українці століттями у них одна з головних Цілий мета були – це земля, право вільно розпоряджатись, купувати, продавати. І на сьогодні, на жаль, українці розглядають, що якщо запровадити право вільного продажу, то земля в Україні поки ще дешева, вона дуже швидко буде скуплена різними олігархічними групами і буде попадати під різного сорту нечесні схеми. Тому... Ті напрями, які вбачаються, могли б покращити ситуацію. Це, звичайно, розвиток фінансових інструментів для того, щоб земля могла використовуватись як застава. Тут дуже важливо, щоб почали працювати наша банківська система разом з бізнес-асоціаціями. Це є відпрацьовані механізми, поки що вони знаходяться на етапі розробки і тестування. І тут якраз можливо, якщо докладати зусилля і технічну допомогу, то якраз саме в цьому напрямі, щоб спромогтися, зробити, принаймні, можливо, пілотні якісь проєкти в окремих областях. І інше питання полягає в тому, що українці, якщо все ж таки влада буде наполягати на ухваленні тих чи інших законопроєктів, пов'язаних з вільним продажем, найвірогідніше, що будуть масові протести, так як це ми бачили стосовно і інших менш чутливих, менш важливих заходів. Тому, хоча цей захід і ті, хто дотримується ринкових засад, звичайно, підтримують впровадження повноцінного ринку землі, але наразі я не думаю, що це найближчим часом станеться. І тому цю вимогу Міжнародного валютного фонду, це одна з основних вимог на продовження подальшого фінансування, я думаю, що тут навряд чи ця вимога буде виконана найближчим часом. Okay, very good. So you don't think it will be uh, fulfilled in the future. Um, Minister Yuresko, do you have uh, thoughts on the land reform issue? So I, I think Ukraine is finding itself right now at a time where it needs to define how it can achieve higher levels of, the, of growth than it's achieved with macroeconomic stabilization. All the positive things we've done have enabled a level of growth of, let's say, on average, 2% per year. But 2% growth <coughs> per year is insufficient to bring us back even to the levels of per capita income of 1991, let alone to the levels of per capita income that the Ukrainian population wants, deserves, um, and, and seeks in life. Um, so the question is, what, what's out there to create economic growth? And, and the issue of land reform comes up over and over and over because you have 32 million hectares of land. 
let's say one quarter of it in state ownership and the other three quarters generally titled because of USAID back in the early 1990s, uh, titled to every peasant, every owner, every, every family, every person got their piece of the land and got a title from USAID. The problem with these titles <clears throat> is that uh, you weren't able to use it to borrow against. Because it's not tradable, because of the moratorium, you cannot go to a bank and say, I'd like to put this as collateral and borrow and invest those borrowings into equipment, seed, anything to raise the efficiency of my growing. And so every peasant has had basically two or three choices. One, to continue to operate on the land themselves, that they were titled, uh, based on their profitability and whether it was a good year or a bad year, whatever monies they have or can borrow in their family, but you don't achieve significant efficiencies that way. Second, to unfortunately, with time, 25 years have passed, many have died, frankly, with absolutely no, receiving no value for that property in their lives. And neither could they borrow against it, nor could they sell it. And then there's a third group of people who reasonably, and I agree with the fears of landlordization and all of the fears are true, but, but the bottom line is people don't uh, farm in Kansas on you know, quarter acres. When you farm in, 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 in grain-based uh, agriculture, you need large, you know, efficient ways to, to farm. And you don't farm small, tiny pieces. So people either come together in some type of cooperative and or because they have no choice, they lease this right. title to a landlord. Yes, you call it a landlord. I'll call it a corporate farm. Because frankly speaking, that's what it is. They're corporate farms that have developed in the absence of a land market. There are you know, 10 or, or 15 large corporate farms that have gone village by village, individual by individual, and offered people you know, to use a little corner for themselves and, be, and eat, but also then to get a small rent over some period of time. And it's very inefficient in its pricing of these leasing, leases. It's very inefficient in terms of the choices that the titled citizen of Ukraine has with regard to his rightful land. So the only, one of the only things that can actually happen in Ukraine to create a big immediate boost, I think there are a couple, but this is the biggest, is to enable this land either in the form of a long-term lease, like in, in Latin America, or in, in terms of uh, ownership, like in, in North America, um, to be used as collateral. And when we talk about what value can be created, it's not about the sale price of land, which is what all the debate is about. It's actually, if you take some price and you can think about what happens to the banking system when all of a sudden you have high quality assets that can now go into the banking system as collateral and be used, uh, and, and, and the, the lending that will be created from that base. What happens to the farms that have been operating at this level of efficiency when after they borrow they can operate at this level of efficiency? So GDP growth and the increase to the economy, there's probably no bigger opportunity for Ukraine to do it, to, to have a big jump. We can continue to grow at a quarter or a half or even a percent of GDP a year. But if you want to jump into six to eight percent, you need something bigger. My argument would be that land reform is one of them. Again, whether you do long-term leases or whether you do sale of title, what you need is a mortgageable document. You need to be able to provide financing. And that creates value not just for those farms. All the, seed all the seed companies, all the herbicide companies, all the equipment manufacturers, uh, <clears throat> the elevator manufacturers in Ukraine, I'm not talking about imports, all of them benefit from extra income and, and 
financing being available to invest in agriculture, let alone then you know, post that agri agricultural processing. Uh, in, I'll just finish. After, after land reform, I think the second thing to do would be to just absolutely complete, and I agree with um, one of my colleagues on the earlier panel, complete privatization. Just finish it. Uh, I, I, the pricing of these assets does not get better year after year. Uh, the reason being the way they're being utilized today. And um, in the end, the market, even in Ukraine, has shown that when an asset is privatized, however it's privatized, if it's not being used efficiently, profitably, typically the owner who, even if he privatized it for almost nothing, typically he sells it to someone else. Because it takes management time and other resources, and he'd rather focus on there where he can make profit. Finishing privatization would put assets into the economy that are not being run efficiently today, but it has a secondary effect, which is convincing foreign investors that they no longer have to be competing with the state. So although I recognize and understand that there are strategic assets that will never be privatized, and they're on a separate list, those that can, including all those that are illiquid today, thousands illiquid, that are the source of corruption potentially, but more importantly, they're not fair competitors with the private sector. And the simple story in Ukraine of continuing a privatization process over 25 years is negative to foreign investors. They just can't figure out which way Ukraine really wants to go. So I think the second thing I would argue is finish the privatization. Just finish it. Whatever can be, whatever is not strategic, privatize it. And, and then the third thing I would say, and we've made steps in this direction, certainly, but full decentralization. I, I, I think the only thing that, that businesses are going to be able to see in an everyday world is lesser bureaucracy, less regulation, less documentation. And so those three things, if I had to choose it, to give a boost, like a, a, an engine of, of boost to this GDP growth, so we can get out of the 2% and into something much higher, these are the kinds of things that I would suggest are next. Good, thank you. Could I add? Uh, I went out to Ukraine in 2014, just after my, uh, I was there to coordinate our assistance as it increased over the course of a year and a half. I couldn't figure out initially why such an obviously rich country was performing so poorly economically. I came to the conclusion that it was because the basic factors of production, the markets for the factors of production, that's land, labor, capital, entrepreneurship, were not functioning. Ukraine was not functioning as a market economy. There was no market in agricultural land and the commercial land, sale, uh, land market was very difficult to operate in. The labor market was very rigid based on a, a, a Soviet era law. The banking system wasn't working now because of the work of the uh, deposit guarantee fund and the, and, and the work of the uh, national bank governor. They're cleaning up the banking system so that it can function as an intermediary between savings <coughs> and capital investment. And the opportunities for real entrepreneurship, the sort of entrepreneurship in small and medium-sized enterprises that was the reason for the success of the Polish transition wasn't possible because of overregulation, because of private state-owned enterprises that crowded out any private sector activity. So there were a whole set of markets that had to be freed up. And that's what the reform process is largely about in Ukraine. That's why you're beginning to see some growth, because those markets are, are beginning to work again. Cliff, if I can ask you, what do you think are the greatest remaining needs that you see at present? Well, I, I agree on, on, on land reform. Uh, I'd, I'd make a, a, another point, though. Uh, the, the reforms that Ukraine has accomplished have, in many cases, two things in common. One, they were conditions the IMF and the other IFIs placed on the country for financing. 
And secondly, they were areas in which the international community, the United States in particular, provided significant technical assistance to help the government implement those reforms. I mentioned the bank cleanup and resolution of banks. We had a team from our Treasury Department that works in the Department uh, Debt Guarantee, Deposit Guarantee Fund, uh, working very closely with the National Bank and the fund to resolve more than 80 banks and worked on the privatization of the uh, uh, Privat Bank. Um, but to do that, we need a commitment of assistance resources to Ukraine. We had that from Congress in 2015 and 2016. We got substantial resources. Uh, technical assistance, that's the, what my office, former office, worked on. Uh, Ukraine certainly needs humanitarian and security assistance as well. But in the technical assistance area, we were providing about $200 million a year. With that level of commitment, we were able to expand our assistance to work on decentralization, work in the energy sector, uh, in a whole host of areas, police reform, helping to stand up these anti-corruption institutions. 2017, the assistance picture is a lot less clear. We're working on a continuing resolution, which if filled, would mean we'd continue to have about 200 million to devote, uh, devote to that. It's not at all clear that we will. And that this administration, administration has signaled clearly that it intends to sharply cut the assistance we'll be providing in this region. That's gonna mean a retrenchment, some of the programs are already doing. It's gonna mean it's gonna be very difficult to expand into new areas. One of the things we did when we got a supplemental assistance budget from Congress last December, as we looked at two or three areas, we started working, and we'll start working in the area of cybersecurity to help the Ukrainians combat the, the threat that cybersecurity poses. We're gonna do more work in the police and state border guard service to advance the reforms that have started there. And we're gonna help the government and strategically communicate its message on reform and, and what it's doing to the east and south of the country. But we need that commitment of, of resources. And as I say, in 2018, it's not at all clear that we're gonna get it. But if we did get it, if Congress, because the administration proposes and Congress disposes, if they made the commitment of resources and we had the political commitment to work in, in Ukraine, th these are some of the areas that I, I think we could usefully work with the Ukrainians on. Um, I'd start with the, uh, the uh, Prosecutor General's office. I, I totally agree with Anders that it would be preferable to clean that out. We've seen no evidence and no commitment to changing the way that, that, that organization operates. In the absence of that political commitment, people have, try, uh, have proposed setting up this anti-corruption court, which would create an alternate channel with the other anti-corruption institutions for prosecuting corruption, which has not happened up to date, not in a significant way. Uh, we'd continue our support to the new anti-corruption institutions like NABU, like uh, the uh, anti-corruption prosecutor. Um, we'd reform customs, if we could. The state, uh, uh, the um, Customs and Border Patrol came out to Ukraine last fall at the request of the PM, and they worked through a strategy and an assessment for reforming customs. We gave it to him. We've gotten no, re no reaction. It is just nothing has happened um, on, on that front. Agricultural reform, we discussed. We could move ahead on improving corporate governance and moving into the area of privatization. USAID actually has consultants on contract that can support privatizations, significant number of privatizations. And I agree the failure of, uh, of uh, privatizing the Odessa port, plant side port, the um, fertilizer facility in Odessa was a very bad signal to the, 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 foreign, uh, the, the foreign investment community. And that was the second time it had happened Second recently. time it had happened, yeah. yeah. Uh, I would 
encourage the government to move in the area of enforcing IPR protections, intellectual property rights. Another factor of production is technology. And it cannot be adequately used and, uh, and, and taken advantage of if there are not the proper protections in place. Um, if I can just follow up on, on something you mentioned, uh, you talked a little bit about uh, decreasing assistance pr prospects, and that's a very big worry here in Washington. Yeah. How fragile is Ukraine's uh, economic recovery in the context of this massive corruption pro problem and decreasing assistance uh, prospects for the next year? Well, I think decreasing, if we de significantly decrease the, the assistance, and Congress goes along with that, we will be in a significantly worse position to help the government do these reforms. I, I don't think Ukraine's economy would be directly yeah. reacting to that, frankly. I don't think you can draw that kind of right. uh, uh, reaction. Uh, more important has been the funding that's come from the United States via the USAID credit guarantees, the billion dollars into the uh, raised uh, that through that through that mechanism for the budget, or things like the development assistance from the World Bank. I have a colleague, my my former deputy minister in the in the audience from the mm -hmm. World Bank. Those types of loans are no longer available, or at this moment, mm -hmm. do not seem to be available. The <clears throat> EU macrofinancial assistance, which was offered to us right after the revolution, of 1.8 billion euro, we have now taken up 1.2 of it. We just received the second tranche yesterday, which is also good news. But that leaves only 600. And I don't actually think it's even the money. It's not the sums of money that are relevant. It's what I, what I tried to say this morning. It's the tool that this money represents in the conditionality and in maintaining political unity in Ukraine for very difficult reforms. There are many enemies of the reforms. There are populists. There are pro-Kremlin. There's the opposition bloc that doesn't want to do these things. There are many who are against these things. There's, there's tradition. There's, there's, there's education necessary for many of these measures. And if you don't have the larger sums available to help condition and help provide the reformers with this agenda, it's, it's, it's not, the agenda is not coming from the US, not from the World Bank, and not from the EU. This is the Ukrainian agenda of reform. The IMF program is based on the Ukrainian program of reform. Even land reform is in the Ukrainian program. Um, I don't mean the coalition agreement. I mean kind of the Ukrainian vision, the president's vision of where the country should be by 2020. The, the issue is that doing these things is tough. And having those resources uh, with conditionality helps the reformers, helps the civil society to actually you know, press it forward against all odds. But what I was talking about was the technical assistance, right. which is enabling to get the reforms done, and which will produce the market conditions that will be those higher level, levels of growth that you need to reach in Ukraine, particularly as you approach 2019 and you've got debt service that you're facing. Anders wants to jump in. Yeah, on the numbers here, Ukraine's public debt three years ago was $73 billion. Before the IMF money comes now, it's $71 billion. So Ukraine has not received any net aid. It has paid back, mainly to Russia, but it's very much the European Union that has insisted on Ukraine paying back to Russia for dubious uh, gas areas that uh, should uh, not have been paid at all. The total EU uh, credit financing, that is real money for Ukraine, but on credit, 2.8 billion euro. The US... Uh, 1.8. No, uh, you had one before, in, before you came in. Uh, 
and uh, then <coughs> it counts. It counts. It counts. It counts. And then counts. three billion from the U.S. in loan guarantees. Uh, the IMF has provided. 8.8 billion dollars, so that's real money. That's uh, uh, most uh, of the reserves that have increased comes uh, from that. But as uh, Natalie rightly points out, there's nothing more on the table. Uh, the, the World Bank has managed to pay out, we discussed it last, it's uh, 700 million dollars and 2.1 uh, $2 billion dollars committed, but it's not uh, getting out of, of the door. And that is not only Ukraine's fault. So there's far too little money on the table. What uh, Natalie and I have discussed before, it should be $5 billion a year in uh, investment uh, credit for the next five years. Think of this, $25 billion for five years. This is just normal money. And then how do you justify that? Well, for example, Ukraine used to get 6 to $8 billion in foreign direct investment. Now it gets zero. Why? Because of a war. People do, American companies do not invest in a country that is at war. And that's how Ukraine is being perceived. So the decline in GDP in Ukraine can be completely explained by Russian aggression, which is an additional reason why Ukraine should be given uh, support. So uh, GDP has fallen in two years by 17%. Why? 7% uh, directly production that has not taken place in uh, Donbass. Uh, uh, three quarters of Ukraine's exports to Russia have disappeared because of Russian trade sanctions. And um, then we have no foreign direct investment because uh, uh, Russian aggression has scared away foreign, foreign investors. Should the West do nothing in face of this? So my strong argument, <coughs> as Natalie's, is that there should be much more money on the table. And uh, since Ukraine has now undertaken so many of the structural reforms, this is uh, the time to do it. I, I wanted to go to that point. Last time you were here, uh, Minister Giosco, you gave a big and bold speech and called for a, a $25 billion uh, program over five years, and it was conditioned. Did you get any traction on that idea? What was the response? The elections in the United States have changed the, the budgetary perspective of the United States. So no, I've seen no traction for that idea here in the United States. I've actually seen no traction for it in the EU as, either. And, and I think it's, it's it, I'm greatly disappointed. Again, I, what, I, what I've tried to do with that proposal was to say, put, put the funds not into the government, not into the budget. Let, let, let the government learn to live with small deficits. Uh, let them become more efficient in their tax collection and more efficient in their expenditures. Don't, don't, don't subsidize the budget. The central bank reserves are reasonable and the path to continued reasonableness is already in the IMF program. There's no reason for additional monies to be allocated for the central bank in Ukraine at this time. However, there are entire sectors of the economy which the government will not be able to finance in the near future. Education, medicine. Uh, we have so many needs in the roads area that you can't, you can't even imagine uh, what the press looks like in, in, in Ukraine with regard to road, roads. It's, it's worse than Chicago. 
And um, in terms of construction, in terms of all of it. Okay. <laughs> Just to be clear, in terms of all those, and 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 these are the areas where this type of investment infrastructure type of lending, conditional to the structural reforms that need to continue, would be extraordinarily valuable. Because the way the way I presented it is, you, the Ukrainian population has lived through very difficult reforms, mm. very painful reforms, but they haven't been able to see yet the benefits that come from completing this reform process. And while the Ukrainian population deserves to see the benefits that come from it, the political unity to continue the reforms to get to the end of the process starts to dissipate. Mm. It dissipates because one, 2% growth isn't that bad. It's stable. It dissipates two, because you've got elections coming up. Any election cycle is, is a bad thing for the continuation of these reforms. And three, populism, which again is not unique to Ukraine. It's happening in other countries. But it, it, kills, it, kills, it kills the pace, the tempo of the reform program. And, and unfortunately, when the Ukrainian population is suffering as it does, you know, it's very easy for populists to take advantage of that. So my idea was to put 25 billion, 5 billion per year into the into the parts of the economy that the population of Ukraine will feel the benefit. They will see the benefit every day when they get up. It's also, of course, things that ben bis benefit business. A better education system is a better educated workforce. Better roads is easier and less expensive transport of your products and services. So it's, it's not like it's not going to benefit business. It does. But, but, but the bottom line is these areas will not receive appropriate budgetary financing from a budget that we continue to have to manage very, very carefully to very, very small deficits. We will not be able to just start spending massively on education, health, or roads. And so to get massive spending in these areas, the idea was uh, that the capitals, the international institutions would come up with a new approach uh, to put in a minimum of $5 billion per year for five years conditional to those structural reforms, but in those areas that would bring the Ukrainian people's hearts and minds to the other side of the reform process and to, the, to be supporters. I, unfortunately, I don't think that accords with what is a very tight uh, current assistance <clears throat> environment. I, I don't think that's realistic. I think, I think what, you need, what Ukraine needs to do is focus on foreign direct investment through land reform, through privatization, through doing what needs to be done in terms of deregulation and improving the business environment. I mean, Ukraine has done a lot. It's moved up on the ease of doing business uh, index in the World Bank from place 116 to 80, but a lot more needs to be done. How quickly did it do that? It, in the last few years. It, but with all due respect, that, that foreign direct investment will be very, very gradual at this point, with the exception, as I agree with you, on the land reform, which could make a big, a big bump. I, I don't even think that, they're, that they have to be one or the other. I think both could happen, frankly. And I think if we want to secure Ukraine, you know, all the security discussions we had this morning, if it is in the U.S. and in the Western world's interest to have a stable, safe, prosperous, competitive market economy and democracy because of what it means not just to Ukrainians but to the world and to the Northeast, then I think dragging this, this reform process out over the next... 10 to 20 years just is not a solution. The other problem you have when you talk about lump, lump sums of money like that is you're still facing a very corrupt environment with, a, with questions about how that money will be used and, or, or not used and be stolen. Uh, that, that, need, that needs to be addressed. 
No uh, question. Yeah, uh, uh, Cliff, uh, what we are talking about here is $1 billion from EBRD, European Sorry. Bank for Reconstruction mm -hmm. and Development a year. Uh, the World Bank has already $2.1 billion committed. They can easily provide $1 billion a year. The International Financial Corporation can do the same. The European Investment Bank can do more. So here you have four institutions that can provide $5 billion a year. It's if they just big. get the, uh, the, the focus, this is what we should do. And then we can get all these anti-corruption reforms that we want done. I'm seriously worried not only that the balance will tip in favor of populism and against reform, that is what usually happens, but that Ukrainians will be disappointed with the West. You said you would provide us with assistance. Instead, you provide us with conditions, which seem to make life worse. And you don't even help us uh, very properly with providing military support uh, uh, against uh, aggression, military aggression against our country. And then they would say, what is this? I think that's a really important point, Anders, and, and you've spent uh, your, your life studying these transitions in the former Soviet Union. How it, when you look at the various transitions, how uh, large is that, that window uh, for reform? Is it usually two years, five years? How, how long are people willing to put up with the pain until they actually see some benefit? Well, of course, the, the big example here is uh, Russia, that uh, until uh, 1999, uh, was positive, or 98, was positive on the West. And uh, after the financial crash of 98 uh, and putting uh, the war in uh, Yugoslavia in 99 and Putin coming to power in 2000, then it was finished. So that, uh, there it lasted for seven, eight years. But you can say that the last years were a sheer waste. The, the effective reform period is normally two years, not more. And now we, we are on the third year after Maidan. This is a critical period. Absolutely. This is when we really need a new Western impetus for more force. Absolutely. I, I, I can't agree with uh, you or uh, Minister Gresko more. When I go to Kiev and talk to people about the beautiful reforms, uh, they look me in the eye and they laugh in my face and say, what are you talking about? Uh, so let, let's talk a little bit about uh, yesterday. The government just put out a, a new action plan. Um, and it's a three-year action plan, and it says exactly what you have all said. Um, Groisman said the plan is for people to feel the changes, um, and they, they've uh, prioritized five areas, privatization, health care, education, land and, and land and pension reform. Uh, would anyone care to comment on that new plan? Is it realistic? Is it, is it something we should be paying attention to? Uh, one, one particular um, NGO reanimation package of reform said it's great that they're actually putting together three-year uh, goals rather than one-year goals. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I'm, I, I'm quite cynical uh, about plans in general. I mean, I think there are plans and plans and plans and plans. We have five year, we have 10 year, we have one year, we have six month. I think everyone in this room and everyone in, 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 in the economic area knows what needs to be done. And so I think the issue is political will. If the plan helps to focus political will on those five areas, uh, and the dialogue now becomes very actively on those five areas, then it can be helpful. But I don't think there are any new solutions. I think, you know, honors would argue, you know, all the solutions are out there. You know, he argued even on the general prosecutor's office, there's a best case and why, why do anything less than the best case reform. I don't, I don't think we need to come, we don't need to, you know, put new instructions on building the bicycle. So my, my focus would be, it's great if it helps push the dialogue in those five areas. I don't disagree with those five areas per se, um, but, um, governments tend to have shorter lives than three, than three years in Ukraine, I'm just saying. 
I mean, it's a, it's a fact. Wrong. It's a fact. It's not a, you know, we had an incredible 16 months, but um, the fact is almost no one's going to last three years. So a three-year plan is, again, a, a good visual, and it's, it's good to know what the priorities are, but I don't think that it serves any greater purpose than kind of focusing the dialogue. Uh, the, also, I, I have to say, I, I experienced, I was in <coughs> Moscow when the, uh, the failed transition happened uh, in 98, uh, but I did spend time in Eastern Europe in 89 in, in uh, what was then Czechoslovakia and watched Poland and, and some of the other East Europeans reform. And some of the elements are missing and what made that a success. Uh, there was a unity of concept among the members of the government and the president. There was the identification of a key reformer. It was usually the finance minister, double-hatted as deputy prime minister, who was supported by both the PM and the president to push ahead on reforms. And there was an, an ability to tr strategically communicate why these reforms were necessary, that there would be a delay in producing a benefit for the public, but that it would come at the end of the day. And I'm thinking of people like Balcerovich and Klaus and Ivan Miklos, who carried out the reforms in Slovakia and who's an advisor to the Ministry of, uh, of Economy. I, now, I, you know, I, different time, different setup in terms of governmental structure, but you need that focus and you need that political support on the individual who's going to be charged with carrying out those reforms. The situation politically seems to be much more diffuse in, in, in Kyiv. Uh, Minister Resco and Anders would like to, to respond. Sure. Let me first say, you get reforms where you have a strong reform leader. Okay. Uh, I would argue today that the two ministers who look strong in terms of doing reforms in the ministries is uh, the Minister of uh, the Acting Minister of Healthcare. Uliana Suprun, and also the Minister of uh, Education. Accidentally, both women, I don't know why. And uh, we, we have also seen that uh, uh, Minister of Finance, uh, Alexander Daniljuk, has followed up uh, uh, quite strongly what uh, Natalie has uh, been doing. But what is spectacularly missing, I would say, in the IMF, uh, uh, effectively reform plan, the structure uh, reform demands. That is uh, privatization. There were a couple of points about them, but very weak. Essentially, uh, do a better uh, privatization law and uh, uh, categorize the, uh, the companies for what they should be done. Why? Because there is no strong will in the government to carry out this privatization that Cliff and Natalie have uh, uh, advocated so, uh, so eloquently. And also the people who are in charge uh, of uh, the privatization issues in the government are not very interested in it. Then you can't get it done. So I'll just, I'll just add that we had that uh, when <clears throat> I entered into government, into the second prime minister, it's a new government. I, I think we had unity between the president and the prime minister, and you had a series of, of ministers leading the reform charge, not one, not a minister of finance, and not a deputy prime minister, but there were a series of people. And, and while that unity lasted between uh, Prime Minister Yatsenyuk and the president, you know, things got done. Uh, you know, we were able to get over 300 votes on critical issues, for example, on the debt restructuring in a parliament where, you know, that unity is not always visible. And I think even to this day, when they work together, the prime minister and the president, you can see that kind of unity. The problem, I think, started to occur when, 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 when that political unity start, started to, to collapse and you know, uh, the people in government started to, the prime minister and, and, and the minister started to take the blame 
uh, for the reforms that were uh, painful. And so I think that, that unity of, of vision and unity of commitment is absolutely critical. Um, and I think you know, having a couple key reformers is, is, is very important. So I think it, 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 we had it. It worked. Um, it would be great to have that again. Let me, let me bring uh, Professor Vasile back in. Uh, at the outset, we talked about uh, the IMF, the new IMF tranche, and uh, Andres said that, that they emphasized four points. One was privatization, one was judicial reform, but agricultural land and pensions were the two. They said, you must do something about these now. Uh, you spoke about uh, the, the, the uh, provision on agricultural land. What about pension reform? Uh, is that likely to happen within this year, or is that a no-go, too? Пенсійна реформа має кращі, звичайно, перспективи, ніж земельна реформа. Справа в тому, що фактично певні зміни вже відбуваються. Відбувається зміна виходу на пенсію, відбувається врівноваження пенсійного віку як для чоловіків, так і для жінок. Є деякі напрацювання в сфері нарахувань на пенсійних внесків відповідно чином пенсії. Це тут треба сказати, що хоч помало, але справа йде. І знову ж таки, що обмежує? Дуже сильно обмежує те, що це дуже болюча сфера, дуже чутлива сфера. І у випадку, якщо мова заходить, ну, скажімо, продовження стажу, робочого стажу для жінок, то одразу виникає питання, чому нинішні жінки повинні довше працювати, ніж попередні. Яким чином забезпечити робочі місця? Україна не надто багата в робочими місцями. Це означає, що якщо продовжити вихід на пенсію, то одразу потрібно говорити про робочі місця. Так само потрібно говорити про рівень пенсії, тому що, на жаль, у нас з початку цього року мінімальні зарплати підвищили вдвічі, а мінімальні пенсії залишили на тому ж рівні. Тобто виникла величезна різниця, яка, звичайно, повинна бути покрита, але це не сприяє якраз розумінню і сприйняттю населенням цієї реформи. Тому що вважається, що знов це реформа, яка придумана для того, щоб акумулювати певні кошти в бюджеті, не виплативши тим, кому потрібно. Тобто тут потрібно дуже, знову ж таки, як і в багатьох інших питаннях, дуже чітка демонстрація інструментів, механізмів. Зараз фактично в Україні працює лише одна солідарна система, тому що інші можливості, вони вкрай обмежені, в тому числі обмежені внаслідок низького рівня забезпечення збережень. У нас, знову ж таки, якщо говорити про збереження, Є пенсійні фонди, приватні, але це мізер, а основному кошти акумулювалися на депозитах. Але після того, як полетіло 80 банків, вважається, що це очищення, але разом з цим очищенням дуже багато людей втратили свої заощадження, дуже багато бізнесів втратили свої кошти. Тому, на жаль, у людей залишається враження, що ті зміни, які відбуваються, вони, ну, скажімо так, вони не надто добре продумані, і питання захисту, соціального захисту, це зараз, можливо, найболючіше питання, тому що воно не може відкластися. І в цьому контексті, хоча просування є, хоча є певні обмеження, але чекати швидких змін, 
тут дуже важко. Це має відбутись в цьому році, не пізніше, в наступному. Тому що в середині наступного року Україна вже почне передвиборчі кампанії. Вибори у 19-му, але кампанії почнуться влітку 18-го, коли буде підготовка до бюджету. До бюджету на 19-й рік. Це вже буде серцевина протистоянь. Тобто Україна сьогодні має рік-півтора для того, щоб провести зміни. І ми, звичайно, сподіваємося, що хоч дуже помало, але ці зміни будуть. Звичайно, якщо буде допомога, про яку добре говорили, це допоможе. Дякую. Because one-third of a grown-up uh, population are pensioners. That is, middle-aged people are often pensioners. That is, they are being subsidized by the young people uh, uh, so that they can continue working but live better, so that the young people cannot afford to have children. This is what we're really discussing. Uh, so, The retirement age for women in Ukraine is 57, for men 60. It should go up as soon as possible to 65. Uh, admittedly, you probably do it only by half a year. A year. Uh, this is not being done for women, but n nothing so far uh, for men. And there have been uh, attempts in Parliament to stop even, even this. And, uh, Previously, there were lots of early pensions and then special pensions for uh, particularly rewarded Soviet citizens, like heroes of the Soviet Union. Natalie managed to get rid of most of that. Uh, and she claimed that there was not as much of it as I argued. <laughs> But uh, <clears throat> it was something that uh, was completely socially unacceptable. And then you need to get proper incentives so that people can save for pensions. Uh, Poland has stood out as one of the most successful uh, countries, and part of it has been that they, uh, uh, in, uh, if I remember rightly, 1998, did a big pension reform, which meant that uh, Poland <coughs> has now the, the largest uh, stock exchange in, um, in a large part of Europe, thanks to uh, 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 pension savings. You don't, it doesn't happen uh, uh, immediately, but you get incentives right, you get something to build, you get uh, uh, capital investment uh, coming. Ukraine needs to start on, on, uh, on this road. I'm so, just going to add one quick thing, which you can't imagine, but there's also not just the issue of pension age, but uh, many categories of employee employment, you have a, 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 a stage, uh, the, the period that you have to work. So in some of them, for example, let's just say you start your job at 25, and if your, your period before uh, pension is 15, you actually can retire and collect pension at age 40. Regardless of the fact, under the current legislation, that the pension age may be 57 or 60. In those categories, you, if there, you have a 20-year stage or 15, you can, you can retire quite early. And so part of this language, if you look at the IMF language, which is very careful, I think, it talks about the average uh, entry into pension. It's not just pension age, but it's also getting rid of all of these mm -hmm. special, uh, they're not even early, they're, they're these, these categories of pension 
eligibility and saying, yes, you are eligible, but you still can't retire until 57 or 60. So saying you know, that those things have to go. That way you get the average age up higher even without you know, ma major change on the other side. So there, there are a lot of things in the pension system that could be done. Um, and the pension, just to be a reminder, is hugely in deficit, hugely. And there are only two ways to, 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 to right now that I can see of increasing the funding. And increasing the funding is necessary, not just because of the deficit, but because truly, Ukrainians deserve better pensions. We have the lowest pensions in Europe, and that's horrible. So how do we do that? How do we get more money into the system? One is changing how many people are retiring at any given time through this age special pensions. And the second is having less in the shadows with regard to the payroll tax. Uh, we have a compliance problem in Ukraine with collecting payroll taxes. We tried to affect it by having the payroll tax from 41 to 20 saying if we made it less expensive, more people would be willing to go ahead and pay. There's some sign of that, but not a great amount. And compliance on paying the payroll tax has to get more efficient in order to have more money in the system. Great. So we will definitely be watching uh, progress on pension and uh, agricultural land as well. Those are two that uh, we will be keep our eye on. Unfortunately, uh, we're going to see less and less of uh, Minister Uresco as she's uh, taking up this new post in, in uh, Puerto Rico. And I want to ask one last question to her. Um, what did you learn from your experience in Ukraine as finance minister that might be applied to, to your new post? <laughs> she, so she's giving up her hats and, and her big coats and uh, is going to go to a much sandier, warmer place. But uh, seriously, what, so did, I, what did you learn that might be applied? I'm actually quite proud that the Ukrainian experience of those years that I was in government um, and, and, and the results that, that people see today in 2016 and, and 17 from the years of, of those difficult reforms is being used as an example, a recognized example elsewhere in the globe of being a positive example. Ukraine was able to accomplish something, and the lessons learned, I think, are great. And I think you know, part of it is the fiscal policy, you know, reducing deficit spending. Frankly, you know, public spending needs to be decreased in Puerto Rico as it needed to be decreased in Ukraine. Uh, Deficit, deficits have to come under control. And then, of course, uh, Puerto Rico is also in a situation not dissimilar to Ukraine, that it's borrowed much too much. And that debt sustainability is, is a serious question in, in Puerto Rico, as it was in Ukraine when I came in. So restructuring the debt portfolio, reducing fiscal deficits, becoming more efficient in the usage of the funds, and then in that way, returning to economic growth as soon as is possible. The lesson learned that I take with me that we didn't do is that, it, in essence, you need to do it faster while political um, consensus exists. In, a, in this respect, Puerto Rico is, in, in essence, lucky that the US Congress created PROMESA, which kind of creates that political consensus, whether, whether it exists in, in the legislative and the executive branch or not. PROMESA is a board that will insist that that political cons consensus exists. Um, and, and then the second part of it is, as I said earlier, I think with all due respect, and my job was finance minister, I wasn't the economy minister or health or education ministers, but those areas have to move at the same pace quickly forward as the fiscal um, because otherwise you have a population that, that doesn't understand why these reforms are worth it. So what I would hope is that in Puerto Rico we do a better job of accelerating the improvements in the economic growth than we were able to do in Ukraine. Wonderful. Thank you. We definitely wish you all the best. We'll miss you. Now it's uh, our time to open it up for questions and answers. Uh, before we do, I need a man with a mic or a lady with a mic. Uh, and I would ask you to please ask a question and identify yourself. Uh, and questions have a question mark at the end. 
Um, this gentleman right here in the middle. Sorry, guys. Thank you. I'll keep this short. Garth Trinkle, economist. You talked about there's widely accepted uh, Western concepts of, of um, privatization and land reform available to uh, the people of Ukraine moving forward. Is the, is the EU and the US on the same page? Is the EU and the US and the Ukraine on the same page in regards to decentralization? It's such a hot potato in, in the US, in, in, in the EU. Is, is the EU and US able to offer Ukraine a model of decentralization go, going forward? Thank you. Yeah, it's actually the model, the model is a Polish model. The US, USAID and the European community are working very closely on decentralization, both devolving powers to the lower levels of government, but also fiscal decentralization so they get the resources to carry out things. I found when I was out in Ukraine and traveled around, uh, local government was really interested in this process of decentralization. They were finally getting, thanks to Natalie, finally getting resources they could decide how to spend in their municipalities. Another part of that decentralization is amalgamating municipalities. So you don't have these small villages. You have larger, larger communities that uh, could provide the services, have the, the scale to, to be able to, to uh, support the public services uh, for the people in those newly enlarged communities. And we've just seen very successful elections at, the, at these community levels. Uh, so and the US and the EU have agreed on a division of labor. We've taken on about 78 of those communities and a number of oblasts. The EU is going to be taking on more than 100. Uh, and then we're going to be comparing notes as the process proceeds. Unfortunately, and uh, Natalie may be in a better position to discuss this, the decentralization process has been caught up in the whole Minsk agreement and the, and the fear that this devolution of power will be used by the Russian-backed separatists to create an autonomous situation in the East. And that's led to a slowing down of some of the legislation and constitutional changes that you need, uh, which over time will fully support the decentralization process. So it's not popular to say, but, but frankly speaking, to some extent, the fiscal decentralization went too quickly. Mm -hmm. um, as a finance minister, I, I would say that I'm concerned that year after year, uh, revenues have grown over 40% locally, and yet locally, the financial structure of the local governments is not prepared to be responsible yet for that amount of money. So you don't have the level of transparency at the local governments that you have in Kiev. At the central government, we have e-data. Every single thing we do in the Treasury is completely online, in real time. Uh, that doesn't exist. Uh, in, in fact, in many of these towns and villages, you don't even have computers. So even the reporting to be able to kind of engage in the system it, is impossible. And so they're getting the monies. Uh, the village I live in outside of Kiev is an example. They can't tell me. They, they'll agree that they have 50% more money. They can't tell me where they're using it, how they're using it. They say they don't have any computers. Uh, you know, that, it, it went too fast. Um, we, we, we don't have the level of, of financial um, management in each one of these decentralized fiscal environments now to give civil society the same tools that they have at the central level to say, how are you spending your money? Are you, are you, are you, are you spending it on roads and kindergartens or are you buying new <coughs> furniture and cars? And so I, my, my fear is that uh, we didn't have the training and the, and the um, technical support at the, at the decentralized level to make sure it was used efficiently. That is part of the USAID program, is to build local capability to be able to do exactly what Natalie said. But I have to tell you, when I was out traveling around Ukraine and dealing with, speaking to these local communities, they didn't feel they had been fully consulted on the process of decentralization. 
uh, they were happy about some aspects of it, but resented the fact that they were suddenly told that this is the, this is the income you're going, to be, you're going to be receiving, this is where it's going to come from, without having much input, input at, the, at the start of the process. Uh, let me take it a, a bit broader. Uh, I've seen many of the transition countries. I've never seen such a, a consensus between the EU and the US as we've seen Ukraine all along since Maidan. Uh, I can give you Georgia under Saakashvili as the opposite example. The EU was dead against Saakashvili, the US by and large in favor of Saakashvili and his uh, uh, reforms. So why is Ukraine different? I think that the main thing is that there is great transparency in Ukraine. You can know everything you want to know, and that's very uncommon. Uh, and the other is that there is a very strong civil society that has been emphasized in previous panels here today. And the consequence of this is that you have a broad consensus about what is right. Uh, so, uh, so the discussion in Ukraine is reform versus corruption and populism. It's not defined in ideological terms. So the good side is reform, and then it's very easy to be united. Great. Let's take another question. Uh, the gentleman right here with the, the blue tie, um, <laughs> <laughs> bluish square tie. Uh, he's in the middle with white hair. Yep. Uh, Paul Thomas, uh, I do business in Ukraine. Very specific question about uh, mid-size enterprises in Ukraine. If you look at the structure of the Ukrainian economy, it's very heavily dominated by micro-enterprises that are small enough to hide from the government or extremely large, uh, call them mega-enterprises, that are big enough to, to bear the cost of corruption and defend themselves. In the middle, there's virtually nothing. I'm a mid-sized business, but my, I sell intangible assets, so I can hide and I can run away. M so many of my clients and some of my investments, well, they're dairy farms, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're brick and mortars uh, and cows. And, and you, they can't hide, they can't run away. And, and we, we have to spend a lot of time, uh, you know, bearing costs we can't bear and fighting battles that are very hard to, to fight. So what specifically can be done? Ukraine, by the way, as everyone I'm sure will get, is an extremely rich country. So what can it do to stimulate domestic investment to create domestic Ukrainian businesses? Great. Thank middle? you so much. Thank you. Who would like to take that question? I, I'd, I'd be happy to just, because when I travel around Ukraine, I would always stop with the local business council and have a discussion with them. And they stated the problem exactly as you did. There's a non-cash economy below which doesn't get taxed, and there's large-scale enterprise with a tax system which Natalie helped reform, which gets all the tax benefits, and we in the middle pay a disproportionate share of taxes. And that was, that was one complaint about the tax system. But they wanted massive deregulation and liberalization of all the controls and the inspections and the rest of it. It's, it's very, they found it very, very difficult because the banking system didn't work. There wasn't a, a ready source of capital at a, at a, at a rate, an interest rate that they could, uh, that they could perform on. Uh, and, and so there were a lot of, and, and the other complaint I frequently heard was that we do not have a defender in the RADA or in the government. We don't feel like we have an advocate there. When I was out there two years ago, sometimes they'd say, at least Sama Pomoch returned our phone calls when we had a question. But they didn't feel that they got that sort of attention or, or that sort of uh, support 
from many, many other layers of, of government and the, and the RADA in, in particular. Uh, it's compounded by the fact, from my experience, that there's a very low public understanding of what a mar market economy is. Surveys again and again show that many Ukrainians, as many as two-thirds, think it should still be the responsibility of the government to invest and create jobs. They don't understand that in a fully functioning market economy, that's the job of the private sector. Only about 10% in those opinion polls uh, would, would answer in, in, in that way. So you didn't have a public support for the sort of business-oriented deregulation and improvement of, of the general business climate uh, that you might have uh, uh, in, in, the, in the West, for example. Did you want to jump in? Yeah, just very briefly. One can summarize this in three systems that need to change. First, judicial and law enforcement system, which I think is the worst. Second, uh, tax and customs uh, system that really need reform. And unfortunately, the head of it is, uh, is uh, arrested, admittedly out on bail, unfortunate as it might be. And uh, then the third, state administration reform that should take care of most of it. So it's, it's all being worked on, but uh, <coughs> the situation is as you describe it. I invested in mid-sized companies. So I agree with you, they were few and far in between, but they do exist. Part of it is business culture. Uh, business culture that uh, one hid from authorities, uh, then hid from a mafia type of government. The Yanukovych regime was not uh, was known for going in and saying, "I like this business. You know, it's no longer yours. Now it's uh, my friends or my cousins or someone's." Um, and and so the business culture is, is, has developed over these twenty some years, where those who are able to hide hide, those who can. Uh, lobby, and, and frankly speaking, you know, large business lobbying is not a unique Ukrainian characteristic. It happens here, down the street. Um, and mid-sized businesses are left to kind of fend on their own. And so that business culture has to change. And I think, you know, competition policy, deregulation, court policy, you know, where, where medium-sized businesses don't feel they need to hide and or don't need the protection of a lobbyist, a large business interest, uh, will enable that mid-size. The, the last piece is already happening, which was mentioned, which is banking rates. Loan rates have been so high that, frankly speaking, you know, accessing money has just been too costly for a mid-sized company. If you're reasonably transparent paying your taxes, you know, borrowing at 40% annually, you know, what kind of business person wants to do that? So I think now that rates have come down and, you know, the, the national bank discount rate has come down, all these reforms that people don't yet see the value of, that's part of the value of the reforms, with the discount rate coming down, the cleaning up of the banking sector such that you don't have you know, artificial banks, we have real banks who are involved in real banking activities, will help over time. But, but those are the key policies. Great. Uh, Professor Vasil wanted to jump in. Я хочу звернути увагу, що зараз в Україні набуває далі більшої популярності це все-таки бізнес-асоціації, які створюються як за галузевим принципом, так і за регіональним принципом. А також створення, також створення самоврядних організацій, коли окремі бізнеси об'єднуються для захисту своїх інтересів і цілей. Причому дуже часто ці самоврядні організації, вони теж можуть переймати на себе частину функцій державного управління. Я думаю, в цьому напрямі ситуація буде продовжувати розвиватися, тому що занадто багато часто держава бере на себе 
не знаючи, не розуміючи, що відбувається на місці. Самоврядні організації, які мають ті чи інші інтереси, вони, звичайно, набагато краще пристосовані. І я думаю, цей напрямок діяльності буде дедалі більше розвиватись в Україні. Дякую. 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 I understand the uh, compelling arguments for compelling economic arguments for um, making land uh, a commodity and, se and sellable, easily, freely transferable. I understand the economic arguments. But my question is, have the experts who are dealing with this issue and advocating this issue, whether it be uh, Western institutions, uh, USAID, World Bank, others, and the consultants who are doing with it, dealing with it. Um, have they taken into account the potentially adverse, the potentially adverse uh, sociological, cultural, and identity, national identity consequences, potentially adverse consequences in those respects from this uh, so-called land reform? And if they've taken that into account, what do they, how do they see those those tendencies being managed and uh, driven into uh, uh, a direction with positive results. I think people say that you know this uh, freeing up the sale of land will obviously put money into the hands of uh, the landowners, but that money is going to be spent very quickly on wash machines, other consumables, and whatnot, and uh, the population will become thoroughly impoverished. Uh, now without land, and um, forced to migrate away from the villages, causing the demise of the village, and creating a new inflow of uh, urban um, proletariat. Um, so, wow. <laughs> George. So, um, what do the experts say about this? <laughs> you know, I, I would argue that that is the line that, that those that are against privatization use. Uh, to say that it's really, so I, I don't agree, I don't agree. I mean, I think if you go, to, you go to the villages now, they're emptying out now. Not because you have access to finance, but because the young people have no jobs, because there's one quote-unquote landlord, or I'll call it corporate farm, and they have nowhere to go, nowhere to be employed. So it's not, financing is not going to force people out of the villages. Frankly speaking, no economic activity is forcing people out of the villages. So I think it's just the opposite, number one. You'd have a whole series of small businesses that would arise in a village if you had you know, farms that were functioning and able to, to borrow. I, you know, the, the argument that everyone's going to borrow money and use it for washing machines and not for their business, Ukraine's been through that cycle of you know, uh, consumer finance and then disaster. You know, real expensive fine, uh, loans for telephones and, and, and other things. I'm, I'm not sure that, that that's that's going to be what it creates. And even if it does, I think it's going to be a minor after effect. I, I, think, you know, I think the benefits that come from this just outweigh massively those, those, those arguments you make. And I don't, I don't see that financing is going to create that problem. I think you know, Russia has a market of land. Um, again, you can do it as wholesale sale, or you can do it as long-term leases if you're afraid of the foreign element. And you can, you can eliminate foreigners in the first X number of years if, that, if you feel strongly. I do not, but let's just say Ukrainians do because of their history. There are ways to deal with all those things. I, I think more and more you're finally seeing young civil society groups coming out and arguing the benefits way outweigh those, um, those detriments. 
Yeah, uh, that's, that's, that's me. This argument was used in Sweden before the land reform of 1827. <laughs> I don't think that anybody <laughs> wants to go back. Yeah. Well, we, we've seen what happened when the sale of enterprises uh, through the stock sales. You know, people sold them very dirt cheap, got a little bit of money, spent the money, and that was the end of their stake in the in the Ukrainian economy. Same thing's going to happen with agriculture. I'm not saying that financing is a bad thing, but I'm saying that I think a responsible approach should take into account the sociological and other implications of this process. I don't disagree, and but the question if you is let whether finish, it's better to stay finish, where you are. If you let me finish, then I think the, the responsible approach is to, is to take a look at those consequences and have parallel programs to deal with those. While you're implementing land reform, you've also got other programs in parallel to deal with the potentially adverse consequences. Then I think that's a responsible approach. But just to just to have a big land dump and say you're on your own, um, I think that's that's not populist. I don't think it's uh, the right way right right way to go. Irrespective of what they did in Sweden in 1826, I have no idea. Anders, you'll tell me about what they did there. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Okay, I'm going to take uh, these two two hands here together. Let's take two questions at the same time. We are almost out of time, so please make it a short question. I'll be very short. Thank you. Is there anyone on the panel that can tell us about the economic situation, financial situation in Russia? Okay, I know we're here talking about Ukraine, but the, the financial situations in Russia directly impact Ukraine. I'm wondering if anybody knows anything I, about it. I think Anders would love to talk to you afterwards. Let's take a, a okay. few more Ukraine questions. Uh, ne okay. Next to you. Okay, thank you for giving me this opportunity to ask questions. So the, the, the first, I would like to follow on that comment first. Uh, uh, just a question, you don't have Okay, I understand, but let me tell some things what I want to say. First of all, about the agricultural reform. Uh, probably you have to look back, not to the Sweden or uh, Poland. You just look at the Ukrainian history and the period of collectivization and what consequences it has. I don't. I will not comment further on this question. Speaking about the pension, you mentioned that some people have the groups that have pensions at 40 years. It's ballerines. And I know personally people who get pension and open business using these pension funds. Speaking again about the agriculture, you know what? You have to live long enough in Ukraine to understand what land means for Ukrainians. It's their land. They, it helped them survive during the perestroika, during the um, other, I don't want to mention other times, what's but just question? recently. Please, please, what's the question, question is, do you understand the sociological consequences of the proposals that you offer. Thank and you. Again, we'll answer that question. One more thank question. you. No, one thank more. you. Thank you. So thank the, you. One more. When you speak about the reforms and the pace of the reforms, it's like, sorry for the drawing this analogy, but it's like uh, making renovation in your kitchen when your living room is on fire. It's like the country is under constant threat, aggression, provocation from KGB on Eastern border and on western border Th Thank now. you so much. Thank so, you. Thank, thank you. you very much. Uh, let me start. Ukraine's GDP per capita today is $2,000. And you are asking for sociological studies what should be done. Uh, there are 7 million people in Ukraine who are of working age, age who are not in the re registered labor force. 
there are probably six million Ukrainians who are working outside of Ukraine. We don't have the numbers uh, because uh, uh, Ukraine is a poor country and what we are arguing for is to get an engine to build the country up. And uh, that's the whole discussion. I did not hear you having any relationship to that. Okay, let's take some uh, more questions. Uh, let's see, uh, this lady right here uh, with the red scarf or the red shirt uh, up in the front. Red. I'm, I'm just going to very quickly answer yes, the Russian yes. question since you're walking out. The Russian economy has become, post-war, less and less important to the growth of the Ukrainian economy. The trade restrictions, the transit restrictions, the, the transport restrictions have all forced Ukrainian businesses, sooner rather than later, to learn to seek out other, other markets. Now, that doesn't mean that a Russian market wouldn't be of value at some point when there was peace, um, but today, the fact of the matter is, you know, the Russian economy slowing has not had the detrimental effect on the Ukrainian economy that it would have had 10, 15 years ago because you know, uh, the, these, these things have been put in place. And so Ukraine has seriously turned, and two-thirds of its trade, if I remember correctly, is now with the EU. Mm -hmm. Our trade with Russia was gas. We don't buy gas. We armaments. We don't do a lot of that anymore. And then there's all these uh, interference in between. So the Russian economy today is not as important to the Ukrainian economy. It could be a, a boon someday if the countries are at peace and, and the markets reopen. But today, I don't think it's as, as relevant as it used to be. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, okay. Please, go ahead. Thank you so much. Um, my name is Roxana Onara, and I work with human rights uh, issues with different nonprofits in the world, including Ukraine, and now I'm assisting US Ukraine Foundation. My question is um, regarding um, the hardships. Uh, the economic hardships and the salaries that ordinary um, citizens face every day that we've been discussing, how little they earn, which has caused massive um, immigration from Ukraine to different countries. Um, so my question is, um, what is going on right now within the Ukrainian government or other spheres of influence that are addressing these concerns? Um, because many of these people um, I've personally even have talked to that live in um, Italy, for example, or other countries, um, they wish to come back to Ukraine, but they don't have a way to survive. Um, so they just take menial jobs just to survive because it's very difficult for them. So what um, has been done, or if it hasn't been done, what would you propose be implemented as far as strategies and reforms to address these concerns? Thanks. Thank that's you. a great question. The, and the IMF. I, did, uh, I, I just think said it's it everything that we've been talking about today. I mean, look, the first thing you need to do is somebody said when your house is on fire is put the fire out. So the government of, of, of Prime Minister Yatsenyuk put the fire out. The currency was fluctuating from 20 to 40 in a day. We didn't have enough money to buy gas in our central bank reserves. We didn't have enough money in the budget when I became minister to pay the wages that were outstanding. None of those are problems today. None of those are problems after that government, after these, these couple of years. The currency is relatively stable. The central bank reserves, we have sufficient money to, to, to import what we need to import. And the budget's finances are such that no one is in arrears. Not coal miners, not nurses, not doctors. Their salaries aren't high, but they're being paid on time. So the fire was put out. That's the first question, because it goes back to what you said. The second thing is everything we've been talking about. People want jobs. People want a reasonable working salary, and they want to believe that they can create a better life for their children than what they have. It's the same no matter where you go. It's what my parents, when they emigrated to the United States, thought. And it's whatever Ukrainian citizen wants. It's whatever uh, resident of Puerto Rico. The things we've been talking about are what we think are tools to create economic growth. Whether it's attracting FDI through deregulation and court reform, whether it's attracting 
domestic investment, creating domestic investment with a finance tool in, in agriculture. All the things we've been talking about are, are, are all about that. How do you create jobs on 93% of our territory, which is at peace? We can't talk about the 7%, unfortunately, for Jack and Dos Oils. But the 93% at peace, we need to be able to create jobs. How can we get Ukrainians to invest and or be entrepreneurial? How can we create foreigners to invest? And in what? Ukraine has such an amazing array of things to invest in. It's creating the environment in which to do it. Let me put it in slightly broader terms. But the question is today, 2% growth, as discussed, and the IMF doesn't predict more than 4% growth or 6 to 8% growth. I mean, 6 to 8% growth is where Ukraine should be with normal reforms. That's what we have been arguing for here. But you still have a big problem of immigration. We are seeing that throughout Eastern Europe. Countries like the Baltic countries, Moldova, Armenia, Bulgaria, each have lost about one-third of a population. It's very difficult when you have open borders and massive differences in wages. So uh, there are about one million Ukrainians today in Poland, half a million at least in the Czech Republic, and uh, the Polish salaries are six times higher than the Polish uh, uh, wages uh, on average. So this will be a long, difficult slog. And what will probably happen is that a large part of the Ukrainian population for a substantial time will emigrate. And then people will come from some other side into Ukraine. It's very difficult to manage these big population flows that we are seeing with open borders and huge income differentials. Uh, Anders, you uh, talked a little bit about the importance of e-declarations at the beginning of this conversation. Um, in the last week, or uh, two weeks ago, there's a, a new bill that uh, Parliament just passed that uh, wants NGOs that work on anti-corruption to have to disclose the same things that government officials do. What do you make of that move? I must uh, admit that I'm in favor of everybody disclosing. So I would uh, like to see it uh, even broader. What I think is uh, deplorable in this act, which has attracted very little attention, is that the military are excluded uh, from it. I would like to see everybody. Uh, actually, in the Nordic countries, since the 18th century, all income and asset uh, holdings of the whole population are public. So in each uh, town in Scandinavia, you can once a year read a list. These were the richest people in our town last year. And uh, all the numbers are public and uh, uh, available. And therefore, the Nordic countries have very little corruption because you can't really be <coughs> truly corrupt if uh, all your assets and incomes are being published uh, all, all the time. And uh, if you really want to fight corruption, as Ukraine really does now, uh, that's what you do. So make it broader. Okay. Thank you so much. Would you please help me thank this panel? <laughs> thank you. Ask you guys to go to the front row. I'm going to ask you just to go to the front row.
One minute. Good afternoon. Thank you for sticking with us. I'm John Herbst again, the director of the Eurasia Center here at the Atlantic Council. Uh, it's my honor to introduce Senator uh, Amy Klobuchar. Before I do that, I'd like to do a shout out to um, Systems Capital Management, which has sponsored today's event. Uh, Representative Jock Wilson's here with us in the front row. And now it's my honor again to introduce Senator Klobuchar. Uh, a real honor, Senator Klobuchar is the beneficiary of a blue chip education, first at Yale and then at the University of Chicago Law School. She's the beneficiary of first class mentorship with former Vice President um, Mondale, a two term senator, the senior senator from Minnesota, very active in getting legislation done on veterans affairs, agriculture, Senate ethics, and from the standpoint of our audience today, very active in assessing the strategic threat represented by Kremlin foreign policy and the critical nature of supporting Ukraine. And with that, I, and Senator Klobuchar was in Ukraine recently and also in the Baltic states um, on a trip in December. And with that, Senator Klobuchar. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much, everyone. I know you started the day with Senator Portman. He and I are friends, so you end with me. Um, and I want to thank you uh, so much for uh, that introduction, Ambassador. Um, I may be the only one that had a Ukrainian town hall in the last month in my home state, uh, but I did. I had uh, many Ukraine. I think we had hundreds of people there, and the current ambassador uh, Skyped in for the entire time, um, and it was just amazing of uh, the number of people we had. I actually, uh, when I first ran for office, I was in a close race for the county prosecutor job, and I had my party at Kramarchuk's, which is a Ukrainian deli, and we were there till I think four in the morning. I didn't find out I won till the next day. But what I most remember is they had this mural of a uh, Statue of Liberty. And the Kramarchuk's, when they came to this country, uh, had gotten that mural up there, and it's been there for decades. Uh, and to me, it really kind of uh, said it all uh, of how proud uh, the Ukrainian-Americans were of our country uh, and how much they also care about where they came from. So um, we have a lot on our agenda these days. A lot has changed in our issues and dealings with Russia and Eastern Europe, as I uh, uh, mentioned uh, about a few months ago, or a month ago at the National Prayer Breakfast, something really big happened back in January, and that is that I was officially displaced as the most famous Slovenian-American in Washington by Melania Trump. Uh, this has been very hard on me, uh, actually. Uh, she was uh, born an hour away from where my relatives live. Uh, and as I said at that breakfast, every day I look at her, it's like looking in the mirror. Um, so we have much in common. So, um, but beyond that, this is truly an unprecedented time. And uh, around the world, as you know, even outside of what we've seen uh, this last year and what 17 intelligence agencies established, we have seen uh, interference in elections uh, and in other countries' uh, governments. 
and no country has felt this more than Ukraine. Uh, as the ambassador mentioned last December, I traveled to Ukraine with Senator McCain and Senator Graham on what turned out to be a really important trip. We went to Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Georgia, and Ukraine, and we had kind of unexpected plans in Ukraine and had to move our schedule around because President Poroshenko spent an entire day with us on New Year's Eve. Uh, we somehow ended up on New Year's Eve night um, uh, in a, a sort of a light snowstorm near the sea, and it was quite cold. Um, and there I was with Lindsay and John, New Year's Eve, which one do you kiss? You know, it's kind of hard. But, um, and uh, on live Ukrainian TV, uh, the President Poroshenko, to show our support and America's support, this true story, gave <laughs> McCain kind of a modified machine gun and presented him with that. He presented Lindsay uh, with a pistol, and he presented me with two daggers. <laughs> that's a true story. <laughs> okay, that's enough. The Navy has confiscated all the weapons, but that truly happened. Um, but all of that aside, uh, it was an incredible trip. Well, first of all, this was my second trip there. I went with Senator Durbin and others. Um, uh, and um, just for a brief time, and it's such a beautiful country, reminds me a bit here and there of my Slovenian heritage with some of the food. Um, and then you just have the courage of the people there. We met the soldiers, and of course there's been a lot of upgrade uh, with the military in Ukraine and organization. Uh, we met the mothers of soldiers who had died, including one mom who had just lost her son to a sniper a week before. Uh, we met with government and opposition leaders, and we met with, of course, uh, the um, uh, we met with the leadership of the country. Um, and I can tell you this: uh, the Ukrainian people are unrelenting in their defense of their democracy, and still uh, Russia keeps at it. They're trying to chip away, uh, to take land, uh, illegal land evasion, cyber attacks, propaganda, economic interference, and more. Uh, they work very hard to keep their thumb on Ukraine and these other Baltic nations. But what I heard when we were there is that Ukraine and Baltic nations do not want to rely on Russia. They want so badly to keep their hard-fought independence, and they want so badly to keep their friendship with America, which is why every stop that we went to, they would have one podium uh, for the president or prime minister and one podium for the three of us, because they were not shying away, as some nations do that I visited around the world, that their friendship uh, with America, they were proud, and they wanted to put it out there right out front. And I think we shouldn't forget this as we look at who our allies are and who will stand with us. So where do we go from here? I know you've spent a day on this, uh, but first, as I think was the subject of your last panel, uh, the Ukrainian economy. Uh, we stayed when we were there near a department store uh, next to the Maidan uh, that proudly sold clothes exclusively made by Ukrainian designers. Uh, it's the kind of entrepreneurship that we're seeing all over the country, an economy that despite all they own, their own issues, as you know, and I'm sure you've discussed with corruption that's still there despite the Russian interference, 
uh, an economy that grew by 2.3% last year. And this week, the World Bank released data showing that fixed investment rebounded by 20% in 2016. Given what they're facing, that they're at war on one front, illegal annexation, energy supply cutoff, um, are constantly being attacked uh, over 6,000 times, what, in just the last year or so, with cyber attacks, uh, 10,000 people lost. Um, I think that shows the strength of a people and the strength of allies that have been willing to do business with Ukraine. So what should we do from here? Well, I think we need to help our Eastern European allies diversify their economies, especially their energy sectors and their export markets. When we were in Georgia, uh, there was so much interest there. Um, and they've been starting, of course, to do more business with China, including China buying their wine, which they, of course, had to have us try uh, when we were there in Georgia. But there's a lot of other countries that are starting to get involved uh, in the Baltics and with Georgia and Ukraine. And I think that you know many countries in the region rely on Russian oil and natural gas to keep the lights on. Russia abuses this energy dependence by engaging in economic blackmail and price gouging. Last year was the first since declaring independence that Ukraine did not buy natural gas directly from Russia. Uh, but with the good comes the bag. And in order to cut off Ukraine's energy transportation sector, Russia is building a multi-billion dollar pipeline under the Baltic Sea. So this is a boon for, uh, this is a boon for oil executives. Uh, in Russia, but it's an economic disaster for Ukraine because 10% of their annual budget comes from pipeline transfer, transport fees. So Ukraine and Eastern European countries have Russia interfering in their economies, and now as the process for Brexit is underway, uh, they are even more wary of their economic futures. So will European commerce suffer without Britain? Uh, will European countries be able to enhance trade in the region? Uh, these are the questions that they are asking every day uh, in Europe and, of course, specifically in Eastern Europe. They're not sure in Eastern Europe that they can count on Europe, and they have to make damn sure that they can count on America. Uh, we need to explore ways to strengthen bilateral and multilateral trade with Ukraine and our allies in Eastern Europe. Uh, it will help bolster their democracies and strengthen the world's resolve in the face of Russian aggression. Uh, but it is also a good opportunity for the United States. And Lindsey Graham and I are working together on this notion and putting something out on this is this idea of doing uh, bilateral agreement with these countries. Other countries have already figured this out. Bilateral trade between Canada and Ukraine increased by 14 percent in 2015 to almost $278 million. And while U.S. exports to the region have actually decreased, which is bad, some American businesses have capitalized on the opportunities there. Cargill, which is a Minnetonka, Minnesota-based company, biggest private company, little advertising there, uh, has invested millions of dollars in Ukraine. And with Cargill's investment, Ukraine will be able uh, to double its grain output by 2020. Minnesota exports more than $50 million in goods to Ukraine each year. Uh, that's the basis of a trade relationship that I think we need to build on. Uh, and Ukrainians that I met in Kyiv want to do the same thing. So it's simple. If we strengthen the economic ties with Ukraine, it will boost both our economies and create jobs in both our countries. Second, as I'm sure you've talked a lot about today, we need to support Ukraine as it fends off Russian invest 
invasions, and cyber attacks. It's been three years since the invasion of Crimea, three years of Russian military occupation. Since then, Ukraine has been targeted again and again, uh, this time by Russian hackers who use cyber warfare to undermine their progress. In a two-month period last year, hackers targeted, as I mentioned, Ukrainian government institutions more than 6,500 times. And of course, Russian hackers have attacked Ukraine's power grid on two separate occasions. In the face of this kind of aggression and what we've seen, of course, uh, throughout Europe in the same manner, um, we have now realized uh, that it's not just Ukraine uh, that suffers in this way. Uh, we have, uh, when we were on this trip, I was shocked, and I think it's a good thing for our own countrymen to realize uh, what happened in Estonia in 2007 when they had the audacity to move a statue of a Russian soldier to a cemetery from a public square. Uh, they get their internet uh, cut off, and it only works at the top of one hill. Or when we were in Lithuania and learned about how they invited members of the Ukrainian parliament from Crimea who were ex in exile in Kiev when they invite them to Lithuania for the 25th celebration, the 25th year of their independence, uh, they get hacked into uh, members of the Lithuanian parliament. Uh, these things are happening all the time. Uh, you know that. Uh, but I'm not sure that people in you know, um, rural Minnesota knew that when they got $200 million worth of fake news bouncing off on their screens. Uh, and probably one of the more interesting stories I like to tell at home, because I think sometimes this gets so political um, and hard for people to understand, because it just looks like a back and forth, but about the fake news was something the Norwegian, we like Norwegians in Minnesota, so that's a good way to begin any discussion, but something the Norwegian prime minister told uh, the three of us in Senator White House and uh, Shaheen and Sullivan and a few others when we were at the Munich Security Conference, and that is that Norway and Russia, of course, have been uh, going back and forth on a number of things, and Norway's been building its military, and so Russia has been sending letters to the prime minister, and all this stuff has been going on. So no surprise, while this is going on, uh, the Russian TV has been running a bunch of fake news about Norway at home. And their major theme is that Norway's economy, which as you know is one of the strongest in Europe, has been completely in the tank, and that uh, they have completely run out of fruit and vegetables, uh, resulting in hundreds of nice uh, Russian citizens um, going to visit their friends and relatives in Norway and bringing huge bags of fruits and vegetables. Um, that just gives you a sense, I think a more guttural, less political sense uh, of what we can be talking about here uh, when it's not just people in um, uh, Ukraine um, that are subject to this fake news that can happen and have, re have ramifications in countries, including uh, Russians themselves that are just trying to be uh, good people and help out uh, their relatives and friends. Um, so what do we do? Well, let's get back to Ukraine. Of course, there's sanctions um, and there's help militarily. Uh, I voted in the Senate last year to provide military forces in Ukraine with $350 million in security assistance and intelligence support, uh, including funding for vital defensive weapons. Uh, I'm pushing for increased funding. I know that there was some discussion about this today as well from uh, the ambassador, and I think that is very important. Um, I've also joined a bipartisan group of my colleagues to introduce the Countering Russian Hostilities Act, uh, in addition to refusing
refusing to recognize Russian control over Crimea. Our Senate bill, as you probably know, takes three more steps. First, impose strong sanctions against Russia that address its cyber attacks, human rights violations, and illegal annexation of land, including sanctions on the energy sector. Second, state that the U.S. will not negotiate any kind of grand bargain that gives Crimea to Russia. And third, making it clear that there are consequences to illegally taking another country's land. Finally, uh, we need to help Ukraine strengthen its own democracy and ward off corruptions. As you know, there have been calls uh, both from our side, uh, but also in Ukraine um, for democratic reform for years. The Orange Revolution emerged out of the 2004 presidential runoff that international organizations recognized as corrupt and filled with voter fraud and intimidation. This spurred massive protests, and these protests led to a revote and a more fair election. That's why I strongly supported President Obama's plan to provide more than $220 million in assistance to Ukraine in 2016 for economic and political reforms, and that's why I also supported making half of the $350 million in security assistance contingent on Ukraine making important reforms that will help the Ukrainian defense forces become more sustainable, successful, and transparent. Both trips that I was on, this was a major part of the discussions. I know when we uh, were there in December that there had been action taken on a bank, on one of their banks, or correct? Okay, good. I'm sure you've made this case before I got up here. Yes. Um, and uh, so there is action being taken, but we continue and must use our the power of our purse strings, I would say, to push for even more as we go forward. But if we help Ukraine without getting to the bottom of what's been going on in our own country and getting our own house in order after this election, I don't think it will mean much um, because then Russia will just do it again and again in another election to another country. Uh, during our visit, as I mentioned, we heard about uh, many intrusions into other uh, countries' uh, cyber systems. Um, and that's why when I got back, I stood with Senator Adam Schiff uh, and Senator Representative Adam Schiff, Representative Elijah Cummings, and Re Senator Ben Cardin to call for an independent commission. Now, this doesn't at all supplant the good work that Senator Burr and Senator Warner are now doing. I'm not going to talk about the House investigation right now. I'm just trying to be focused my own turf. <laughs> um, but uh, the Senate investigation, uh, which I think is real uh, and has bipartisan support on that committee, I think that is very important. That continues. But that doesn't mean that you can't um, supplement it by at the same time having an independent commission. And that could have a different mission. That mission uh, could be a lot more focused. Of course, that's experts appointed um, on how we can prevent this from happening uh, in the future. Because I just don't think we're going to quite get that out of the Intelligence Committee because they're focusing on getting all the facts of what happened. Advantages of the Independent Commission supplementing it is one, you can perhaps make things more public, uh, and if, especially if it follows later, uh, not, you wouldn't have to wait for the whole intelligence investigation to be done, but you could make more things public, and then, of course, you put out a blueprint for change. Think about what the 9-11 Commission did, and people say, well, this wasn't 9-11. I'm thinking, yeah, but this was 17 U.S. intelligence agencies saying that a foreign power directly against what our founding fathers wanted, which was no foreign influence on our elections, uh, that this foreign power tried to influence our elections. That is a really big deal. 
not to use Joe Biden's adjective that goes with that, but this is a big deal. And so um, I think there is a reason to have an independent commission um, so that then they can put out a blueprint of ideas and things that we should do, that Congress should do, that administrations should do uh, going forward, whether it's state election equipment to get it upgraded, uh, whether it is what campaigns do, whether it is how we interact with our intelligence agencies when things like this happen in the middle of a campaign. There's a lot of good recommendations that could be made uh, that we can then act on. And so I think there, this really does cry out uh, for that independent commission. And I do not see it as an either or uh, between my good friend Mark Warner's work, uh, along with Senator Burr's, and the work uh, that an independent commission uh, should do. Because in the end, uh, while your focus is on Ukraine today, I think you know this isn't just about one country. Uh, and it isn't even just about our own country and what just happened in the past year. Uh, this is really an assault on democracies all over the world. And when you put, it's not that hard to connect these dots and see what happened with Ukraine and what we're seeing what happened with fruits and vegetables in Norway uh, and what we see what happened when uh, Georgia uh, gets invaded and uh, Estonia's internet gets cut off and America's election basically gets hacked into. That's a big deal. So I want to thank you for uh, the work you've done. And there's many people in this room who have given us advice. Lindsay Kerr, who does my work in this area and was brave enough to be on that trip and tell me I couldn't keep the daggers, um, is uh, someone uh, that you can trust and talk to with any ideas that you have. So be sure and call our office. And thank you very much. And thank you for doing this today. Thanks.